So over the next eight weeks, we're going to be working through the book of Romans. So let's uh, begin by placing the book in context. It's written by the Apostle Paul, formerly known as Saul. He was a Jewish rabbi, a Pharisee, and he saw Jesus and his followers as a threat to Judaism. In fact, he was so incensed by the rise of Christianity that he set about stamping out the church at a very early stage of its development. So Saul was on his way to Damascus with permission from the high priest to arrest any Jewish converts to Christianity that he found there. And it was on this journey that Saul had a radical encounter with Jesus. And as is so often the case uh, with those who encountered Jesus for the first time as adults, his life did a 180 degree turn. Uh, Saul became an apostle, which is kind of uh, uh, like an official representative of Jesus. And uh, But from then on, he went by his Roman name, Paul. Paul traveled extensively, preaching the gospel and establishing churches all over the ancient world. Now, Paul hadn't been to Rome, but a church had sprung up there. And he longed to visit this, uh, this church in Rome, but he'd been unable to do so. And it's a good thing for us that Paul couldn't go in person when he hoped to, because it meant that he had to write down what he would have said if he'd gone in person. So quite late in his career, Paul wrote this letter to the church in Rome. And it's important that we understand that it is a letter, and it's a letter to a church that had existed for some time and comprised both Jewish and Gentile, non-Jewish converts. Uh, This letter, Romans, is the longest and perhaps the most significant thing that Paul wrote, and it is vital uh, to a proper understanding of the gospel. Romans is Paul's explanation, summary, and treatise of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And central to this gospel is the idea of righteousness. Righteousness. In other words, how human beings may be put right with God. And that's what we're going to be studying over the coming weeks. But if we are to be put right with God, then straight away that suggests that there is something wrong that the relationship has broken down. Well, this morning, we're going to look at two aspects of that, our sin and God's wrath. Now, it sounds uh, bleak, uh, but let me assure you, it will pick up as we go through our study of Romans. So firstly, our sin. Uh, Last week, we were looking at Psalm 119, which invites us to extol God's word, to take seriously his commands, decrees, statutes, and precepts. We saw that there is such a thing as objective morality. There is such a thing as right and wrong. God gives us moral law. When we make good moral decisions, we are uh, being obedient to that law. When we make bad ones, we are flouting it. Going against the grain of God's moral law is sin. Anything we think or say or do which is outside of God's good, perfect and pleasing will for our lives is sin. The book of Romans addresses the problem of sin. Now, it may not seem very cheery to focus on sin. I'm sorry about that. But we cannot move to the solution until we understand the problem. If you have a horrible stench in your home, you cannot deal with it. You cannot find a solution until you know uh, that it's caused by a blocked drain. You must identify the problem before you can move to the solution. And that is exactly what Paul does. 
The problem is human sin, and that's what we turn our attention to now. Paul tells us, and I find this fascinating, he tells us that every human being knows that there is a God and knows something about him because of the natural order of things. Listen to verses 19 and 20. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. In other words, we can know a lot about God simply from the evidence presented to us by creation. The psalmist says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. When we look at at creation, we see that there is a God, that he's infinitely powerful, that he's creative, that he delights in beauty, that he brings order. Yes, creation has been marred, all is not as it should be, but it hasn't lost its capacity to speak to us about God. We're in New Zealand a few weeks back, and on one occasion I did a slightly more challenging walk on my own. It was a couple of hours up through a forest and then a steep scramble up onto a ridgeline. And when I got up onto the ridge, there was a a stick jammed between the rocks, upright, marking the route back down. It was just the kind of stick that you'd find on the forest floor. Uh, There was no one else around. I hadn't seen anyone else. And yet I knew instantly that a person had placed the stick there. It wasn't there by chance. It wasn't the work of some animal. Uh, A human being had jammed that stick into the rocks. An upright stick was enough to convince me that a sentient, conscious, intelligent person had been there before me. An upright stick. When we look at the world around us, let alone the cosmos, are we really expected to believe that it's all there by chance, that no intelligent agent was involved? We only have to look at creation to know that God exists. And Paul tells us that we have deliberately suppressed the truth revealed by creation. He goes on to say, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of God, uh, the, the glory of the immortal God, for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. The key word there is exchanged. There is always an exchange. The human mind is not a vacuum. Once the truth about God has been banished, it'll be replaced or exchanged with a lie. Wisdom is exchanged for folly. If we don't worship God, then we worship something else. Now, we may not worship an idol uh, crafted of wood and stone. In our day, we're more likely to worship money, sex, power, celebrity, uh, some philosophy or other, whatever it is. Uh, But, you know, crafting an idol and clinging on to atheism are motivated by the same desire, a desire to supplant God. Idols do not demand anything of you that you don't want to give, and neither does the blind chance of the atheist. Idols don't care how you live your life, nor does the empty, meaningless void created by atheism. Humanity has deliberately rejected its creator. 
And the result is evident. Towards the end of the chapter, Paul lists a catalogue of sins, the result of a race that has cast off the perceived constraints of God's moral law. Uh, Paul talks about envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. He says they are gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Not every individual commits all the sins on Paul's list, but they are all present in every community. And all of us share the same sinful nature from which they proceed. Humanity as a whole has been tarnished, corrupted, and perverted. We're trapped in a, in a spiral of sin and selfishness. Of course, there are many factors that influence human behavior. Heredity, environment, education, upbringing, and so forth. But ultimately, the atrocious way that human beings behave can only be attributed uh, to the fact that we are sinful by nature. But paradoxically, that does not make sin natural. Because God did not intend for us to be sinful. He knew that we would be, but it wasn't his desire or intention. Humankind has fallen into this sinful nature by uh, grasping at autonomy and independence from God, by using free will to uh, reject and rebel against God. Our nature doesn't reflect the way that God intended us to be, and so it's not natural in the best sense. In verse 20, Paul tells us that we are without excuse. We cannot say, uh, this is just how I am. I was born this way. I can't help it. That is not an argu- a good argument for a Christian to make. Sin is the urge to do things that God expressly forbids. And that is not natural in the best sense, in the truest sense of the word. It doesn't matter what kind of sin we're talking about, jealousy, pride, sexual immorality, greed, whatever it is, having a proclivity or propensity towards sin is not a defense. We may not be able to eliminate the impulse, but we are not required to act on it. To act on a sinful impulse is a deliberate choice on our part. What's more, we won't be able to say, I just did what everyone else was doing. Uh, That is a variation of the uh, defense that every parent has heard from their children, uh, which is, uh, I just did what, well, he told me to do it. He said it was okay if I did it. Uh, There is such a thing as mob mentality. Uh, That is to say that people behave very differently when they're in a crowd. They feel that anonymity allows them to act with impunity. I was once caught up in a riot and there were hundreds of people uh, carrying out mindless acts of destruction and violence. They were doing things that they wouldn't dream of doing if they were the only person doing it. When many of those involved wound up in court, the fact that hundreds of people were displaying the same behavior did nothing to reduce their culpability. I just did what everyone else was doing is not a viable excuse for sin. So we've seen that human beings are sinful by nature, uh, but we've also seen that sin is deliberate and it's inexcusable. As one author wrote, there is not a man or woman anywhere who will be able to plead, I did not know that there was a God. I did not know any better. Nobody told me. How was I to know I was doing wrong? I had no idea that God would hold me responsible for my actions. I was completely unaware that I'd be judged for the way that I've lived. 
So that's our sin. We now turn to God's wrath. Our passage today began with these words. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. This section of Romans paints a vivid picture of human depravity and places an emphasis on God's response to it, wrath. Now, before you start thinking, oh, this is all too dark and gloomy to bear, I must point out that we are still wading around in the problem. Romans is Paul's explication of the gospel. And as you know, the word gospel literally means good news. We didn't start right at the beginning of Romans 1. um, But if we go back to verse 16, it might help at this point. It says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. That is good news. So we're going to talk about God's wrath, but we mustn't lose sight of the fact that the the whole point of the gospel is that we might understand how to be put right with God. As we'll see next week, when we put our faith in Jesus, God's wrath is turned away. And we must understand the fact that God is capable of wrath does not make him unloving. As John Goldingay wrote, uh, God juggles a personal commitment to loving all people with a personal commitment to taking action against wrongdoing, lest it spoil the whole universe. God is not like a benevolent old grandfather who turns a blind eye to the minor misdemeanors of his grandchildren. Sin is serious. It has spoiled creation, and it must not be allowed to do so forever. Our passage plainly declares that God is angry with sin, the sin that has so marred creation, that has distorted his image within each one of us. But when we talk about God's anger, we ought not to uh, put it in the same category as our own anger. Actually, it's not a sin for us to be angry. There is such a thing as righteous anger. When we hear about some horrendous abuse or injustice, it is not wrong to be angry. Uh, You know, we hear about a a corrupt government who are allowing thousands of people to starve or an elderly person attacked in their own home or a child that is abused. Uh, It is not wrong to respond to that with anger. The problem is that our anger is often expressed for the wrong reasons and accompanied by all sorts of other sinful emotions. God's anger is pure and righteous, always. When we hear about God's wrath, uh, we tend to think of the proverbial lightning bolt coming down and frying some wayward person in their boots. It's not a particularly helpful image. Uh, A very good friend of mine uh, would say if I'd made some error during the service, well, at least we haven't got a new skylight, Uh, by which he meant uh, if God hasn't struck you with lightning, then you probably haven't done anything too wrong. But of course, he was joking, uh, but it's an idea that is... Uh, it it does exist within the popular imagination. Uh, But verse 24 indicates that God's wrath manifests itself very differently. It says this, Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts. Humanity says to God, we don't want you. And God, with great sadness, says, okay, have it your way. When God disciplines us, that's a good thing. Uh, The purpose of discipline is to divert us from a course that could lead to our destruction. When God disciplines us, he's showing his care and concern just as any loving father disciplines his children. When God steps back, that is the first stage of judgment. 
For those who are unrepentant, the final judgment will lead to, will lead to death. Uh, not the bodily death that all of us will one day experience, but what the book of Revelation refers to as the second death, a kind of spiritual death, a separation from God. And Paul seems to imply that everyone is aware of this impending judgment. Verse 32 says, Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. It seems that Paul is saying that everyone has this knowledge. It can be repressed. It can be replaced with a lie, even to the point that it's barely perceivable. But it is there. Uh, that is why I think people can often get very angry at the mere mention of God and sin and judgment, uh, even when those things are talked about in the context of God's steadfast love. Uh, people don't appreciate being stirred from their slumber, woken from their dream. Uh, we could talk about, you know, some person might say, well, what about a remote tribe, you know, live in some place in the jungles of Borneo? Uh, they haven't heard about uh, Jesus, well, they may not have heard about Christ, but I think what Paul is saying is that they have an innate knowledge of God and an understanding that they are responsible to God for their actions. That is why every civilization that we know of has worshipped some deity or other. It's a fact that people often try and explain away. They say, oh, well, they didn't have science, so of course they needed to come up with a way of understanding the world. But humanity's search for meaning, purpose, and understanding is yet further evidence that we have an innate sense that there is something bigger than us. So judgment's, judgment awaits. It's a reality. And uh, the wages of sin is death. But death is not what God wants. He doesn't want it for you. He doesn't want it for me. He doesn't want it for anyone. And that is why the gospel is such good news for everyone. 1 Timothy 2.4 tells us that God wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. If we look forward to chapter 2 verse 4, we see that God's kindness, forbearance and patience are intended to lead us to repentance. Yes, we're all sinners. Our sin is deliberate. Our sin is inexcusable. Our sin merits death. So why doesn't God just uh, zap us all with a bolt of lightning and be done with it? Well, quite simply, because he wants to give us, he wants to give humanity every possible chance of turning back to him. He loves us, even to the point of dying on a cross for our sins. But Jesus won't force us to love him. If he did, it wouldn't be love. God prizes our free will so highly he gives us so much freedom that we can, if we choose to, even reject him. But the flip side of that coin is that if we turn to God, he will forgive us. He'll run to us with open arms like the uh, father in the parable of the lost son. I think it should be called the parable of the running father. We are loved by God. God loves you. He's paid the penalty for our sin, and he wants us back. So today we've seen why we, we need saving. We've seen uh, the problem. That's what we focused on. In subsequent weeks, we're going to be hearing a lot more about the solution, uh, how we saved, and actually what are we being saved for.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 2,000 years ago, Paul wrote to this church in Rome about the problem of sin. A problem that was all too evident in his time. A problem that has not gone away. It's every bit as evident in our time as it was in Paul's. And we recognize, Father, that we contribute to the overall picture of sin. And so, Father, we do pray that you convict us, uh, that you'll, by your spirit, lead us to genuine repentance and faith in your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that in your great love for us, you have found a, a way out, a way through. You've paid the penalty for us and we are grateful. Help us to appreciate just what this means. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.